Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Pakulski, and I'm super excited about today's podcast because I got to travel to Southern California uh, to spend a day in this man's home. We sat down one-on-one, literally spent the entire day uh, diving into his life, diving into understanding who Paul Check really is. And this guy is an incredible educator, someone that I may even call a guru, although he may uh, reject that title. Uh, Paul is one of the most well-read human beings I've ever come across on topics ranging from spirituality to psychology and philosophy, human anatomy, performance, and everything you need to truly live your greatest life in a body you love. Now, Paul is a master. Paul's been doing this for 35 years, teaching thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Uh, And his programs range from personal development to psychology, to physical enhancement, and to healing the somatic responses that you're getting from injuries from emotional trauma. It's super, super interesting to really understand the depth and breadth of Paul's knowledge. Today's conversation goes deep into his past, goes deep into what drove Paul to become the man that he is. And after 35 years, what drives him to continue to have this thirst, this hunger to aggressively pursue knowledge and wisdom. And Paul has transcended so many aspects of education. He's now very much focused into the spirituality of life and evolving his spiritual side. And I will say he's already incredibly evolved spiritually. He gives us a lot of really interesting insights that may sound a little bit uh, esoteric to a lot of our listeners. But when someone of 35 years of education and 57 years on this planet of incredible wisdom speaks, I say, just there's a lot to be learned and you sit down and you keep your mouth closed and your ears open and you take in the wisdom which is what I did for a large part of this podcast Paul drops 90 minutes of incredible wisdom on us on you know how he discovered this path and how maybe you and I can benefit from sitting down and listening and following our passion following our soul and finding meaning in our lives and what does it mean to us to have meaning and how can we pursue that more So Paul has a really unique approach to uh, integrating health and fitness and training. He's transformed countless lives uh, through his many, I believe it's 16 programs he's got online. You guys should absolutely go over and check out the Czech Institute from Primal Movement Patterning to his PPS Success Mastery Program. Uh, This guy's an expert all around the world in all of these areas. And if you mention the name Paul Czech to anyone in the fitness industry, they will know who you're talking about and be super excited about his content because he's got such a unique and insightful approach to everything he does. It's absolutely incredible that I had this opportunity. I feel incredibly blessed. I also got the opportunity to sit down with Paul on his podcast. So he's got a podcast called The 4D Podcast, um, which you definitely want to check out. And he actually talks a little bit about the significance of 4D, uh, what that actually means and how to live uh, in four dimensions. And it's got some other interesting connotations in there as well. Uh, But without further rambling from me, uh, I want you guys to get this amazing opportunity to listen to the podcast with Paul Check. Now, I suggest you listen all the way to the end because as we get more comfortable, as the conversation starts to flow, he really starts to get into really interesting, juicy stuff. Beginning is a little bit of a uh, history about Paul, and we get into a little bit of a personal conversation about where we both come from, how we both have very similar pasts, and how these uh, struggles often become our greatest opportunity to progress. And you guys know I say that all the time. 
time. I also want to give a massive shout out to everyone that I encountered in Southern California this week. So I spent the week down in Southern California. So I was in Newport, I was in San Diego, I was in Venice, I was in Beverly Hills. And everywhere I went, it seemed as though that, um, you know, effectively everyone was so excited about the content we're bringing on the podcast. It was really invigorating to my heart and my soul to hear that we're making an impact and people are loving this content. Um, so I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for you giving me your time, your ear, and I'm so grateful that I get to bring you this wisdom and get to travel to meet people like Paul. Uh, if you guys enjoy the show, please support us as always, because uh, it really matters. It really matters to me. It really matters that we can uh, financially afford to keep this podcast going because I really think we're doing a great thing. And I know we're impacting you know thousands and, and millions of people now. Uh, we're at around 3 million downloads for the year, uh, which is uh, incredible. So I'm fairly, I'm extremely grateful for you guys um, for continuing to share and continue to leave us reviews because we want to bump up there on iTunes because we want this really important message of holistic, healthy, intelligent muscle building to be spread around the world. And it's not just about muscle. You guys know there's all these things that go into truly living your greatest life, right? So if you want to build muscle, well, what are all those boxes you need to check to make sure that actually happens? If you want to lose fat, what are all those boxes you need to actually check to make sure that's happening so that your internal health is there? Because we know that your internal health has to precede muscle building and fat loss. Without internal health, the likelihood of doing it becomes significantly diminished. So without more rambling, enjoy my podcast with Paul Check. At the end of the show, share it with at least one person you know that loves it. Have an amazing day. Live your greatest life in a body you love. I'm sitting here in the house of the legend, Mr. Paul Check. <laughs> Thanks Dude, for the promotion. <laughs> I'm so, I'm honestly, that, that's an honest statement, and I'm so grateful to be here. And um, one of the things the audience needs to know about you is I think you're maybe one of the most interesting human beings I've ever met. Thank you. And I've been studying you for a while from mm -hmm. a distance. And the thing that I love is... Um, so many people um, are very theoretical and mm -hmm. they have a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant theoretical knowledge. And then there's some people who have a practical knowledge. Um, and there's very few people who have been able to integrate theory, practice, and spirituality mm. uh, in a way that's intelligently done with a substantiated backing behind it. And then I come to your house and I see why. Mm. There's thousands of books mm. and you're just a student of life. Yeah. How did that begin for you? Well, it began really... I think, from a spiritual perspective, my father drowned when I was eight, oh, wow. and it put me into a deep crisis. And my stepdad and my mom didn't really elaborate much on what had happened, uh, so that it was kind of secretive. And I just felt, me and my brothers and sisters, uh, I have one brother who later committed suicide, which was another spiritual crisis. And my sister were all just, you know, kind of sh in shock. And I spent the next four years looking for my father everywhere because I didn't believe my parents. But paradoxically, I knew that he had died. My grandparents came to visit us right before they were going to my dad's funeral. And my first remote viewing experience actually was I I think the the night before my grandfather got there actually no it was the, the he was there and he told us that he was going to my dad's funeral and that night in a dream I saw myself I found myself 
hovering over the funeral and watching it, and I could see my grandmother and grandfather there, and um, he later talked to me, and I said, I saw the funeral, and I told him what the gravestone looked like, and he was shocked because I described exactly what it was. And then when I was a kid, um, my mother was a Christian scientist to begin with, and I found that extremely stressful. I, I found that, you know, all this talk of God is love and Jesus loves you, but then you'll burn in hell if you do this or do that or touch your genitals or whatever. And every time I would ask a question, I got less than a warm reception. I couldn't get any answers. And I, I, I actually found myself as a kid thinking, oh my God, I mean, how did I get to this planet? And I couldn't get anybody to ask my, answer my questions about all this Bible stuff that was not only confusing, it, it was self-contradictory. And, I'm, and I was worried. I'm like, I'm eight and I can see there's problems here. And these people are believing in it and right. I can't get any answers. So my mother became a member of the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is Paramahansa Yogananda's teachings, when I was 12. And so she left Catholicism Yeah, she left the Christian science. Yep. She, you know, she was dealing with a lot of pain, and, and she had a lot of crisis, and it would be a long story to tell you all that, but, you know, she had plenty of pain to deal with. And she had friends that were practicing yogis through the Self-Realization Fellowship, and they were very beautiful people. They were both school teachers, and so they, I think, were the ones that inspired her to go to the temple meetings. And I'll never forget the first day I, I was in a self-realization fellowship temple. And they started the opening prayer with everybody praying together to begin the ceremony. And the prayer began, Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, Paramahansa Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda Sri Yukteswar, Lahiri Mahashai, Babaji, Krishna, Jesus Buddha, saints and sages of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. And when I heard that, it was like lightning went through my body. And I just, as a child, had this feeling, I'm safe. These people aren't going to burn and torture anybody. They're, there's a connection, a love, a reverence, and a respect for all beings and all the great teachers. And even as a 12-year-old kid, I just had this truth buzzer in me. And I knew I was safe, and I saw how my mother, who had quite a violent relationship with my stepfather, and my stepfather was quite violent to us, uh, very dangerously violent, hospital visits violent. And my mother and father, they started getting along a lot better as she practiced yoga and meditated. It was like the whole environment shifted. And later when I was 15, I went to summer camp with the monks and I was able to spend, you know, a good chunk of time with them asking every question I could come up with and they always had amazing answers. I learned meditation techniques. Yogananda was really big into a balance of diet. We exercised every day. All the monks, they had to take breaks and exercise and play basketball or do physical exercise, they had meditation practices. There was this sort of a foundation that was created 
And my mother was, and, and my stepfather were, were both very holistic. We raised everything pretty much. We ate on the farm with rare exceptions. We made our own, we milked our own cows. We made our own cheese. We made our own ice cream. Uh, we slaughtered our own animals. We grew our own produce. So we pretty much lived off the farm. And I learned being on a farm that you can't mess around with nature. You, you, if you screw up, your animals die, you starve to death. If you screw up, your plants die, you starve to death. Um, you know, we, we had to grow our own hay, so when weather would shift, and if it was hay season and you didn't get the hay out of the fields quick enough and it started raining on Vancouver Island, it can rain for three weeks, day and night, nonstop. Mm -hmm. Your hay can go moldy and then it ruins the hay. So there's like real a real interface between the forces of nature and the practical aspects of reality. If an animal's sick and you don't care for it, they die, you lose a lot of money and a lot of time is wasted. And we sold firewood. Um, you know, there was times when, when my father didn't have work and my mother as, as a waitress couldn't afford to support the whole family. So the farm was a working farm and my parents crossbred sheep to produce black wool and we had a woolen factory. We converted one of our barns into a woolen factory. So I had a lot of interaction with animals, with plants, with nature, with responsibility. Um, my dad's rule was the animals get fed and watered before you do. And if you ever got caught eating before the animals were fed and watered, you'd, you'd never forget it. And I learned you know, my father was, when I say my father, I mean my stepfather, he was the kind of guy that if he said fix the fence or fix something and he came back in an hour and it wasn't done, you were going to hurt. And so I learned that you have got to figure out how to get something done. He would say, I don't care if you have to beg, borrow, steal, call the neighbors, do whatever you got to do. And so... As a child, I learned on a farm that you can't sit around and make excuses. You, you've got to use your neighbor's knowledge. You've got to use the phone book. You've got to do whatever you... Self-reliance. You've got to be self-reliant. Sure. Now, not totally self-reliant because, you know, if I needed to go ask the neighbor, hey, the bailer's stuck, what should I do? I could get an answer. I, I learned to use the community. I also learned to pay attention to everything that you had to pay attention to, to, to be productive on a farm. And so through the sort of spiritual underpinnings, dealing with a lot of stress and emotion and violence and learning how to, and you know, a lot of the animals were my best friends because I didn't have a lot of time to be with friends. It was get up early in the morning, do your chores, eat, run to the school bus, get home, start working, and you work till it was done, no matter how dark it was, eat dinner, and then to bed. So my life was kind of like this conveyor belt. And so I didn't have a lot of friends, so I made friends with the animals, you know, and I would, I remember raising pigs from being piglets till the time they went to slaughter and feeling the terrible pain of losing my friends and raising the chickens and having to slaughter them, uh, you know, cut their heads off and pluck them and gut them, and going through this paradoxical experience of developing relationships with these beings that I then had to kill and eat. And it had a, quite a profound effect on me. And my mother, being a yogi um, and Yogananda 
inspired people to practice vegetarianism. So when I was 12 or 13, she asked me if I would do it with her. And after six months, I started feeling really bad and um, I couldn't think straight and I had no energy and my parents knew something's wrong with them. So they mm -hmm. took me to a naturopathic physician and he did some blood tests and he came back and said, this kid's anemic. You got to start. He needs a steak. Just take him home and feed him some meat. And I remember the first time eating meat after six months, it was like someone just turned the lights on and all of a sudden, you know, within a few hours, I was like back to my normal self. So sort of as an overview, that that's, I learned spirituality that helped me deal with tremendous emotional loss and pain, which I had plenty more of in my life. I learned that uh, a system of world religious concept, which is a higher structure stage of consciousness than fundamental Christianity is, where you honor and worship all the great faiths and traditions and seeing how intelligent the monks were and how they processed information taught me don't have inhibitions about where you get knowledge. Go wherever the gold is and have, the only question is, does it work right. in practice? So when you put all that together, uh, you get somebody who has a genuine interest in getting to the bottom of it, who's not afraid to ask anybody from the neighbor to your friends at school to the sports coach to looking through the phone directory and calling people. And I learned a high level of responsibility. If there's one thing my father taught me, don't make excuses. Get the job done. Right. My dad's rule, if you aren't bleeding to death or, or dying, you get better done. get the job done or you will be bleeding to death and dying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now you have this very, very sincere articulation when someone asks what you do and you say, I help people. Yeah. And that's just such a beautiful thing. And, it, and it's sincere coming from you, right? Like you're, you're a healer physically. So you're helping people build their physical body, build their mental body, build their spiritual body, improve their relationships. And you've kind of brought it into this beautiful framework. Um, and your choice, you can start talking about the, the four doctors mm -hmm. or the, the, um, the totem pole, like the... Yeah, the check totem pole. Yeah. Um, I'd love to just kind of walk down um, whichever you think is more appropriate for the audience right now, um, how you kind of got to, you know, narrowing down the thousands and thousands of books you've read into this very simple and concise blueprint. Yeah, well, one of the things I'll say to preface that is, uh, one, I, I only went through the ninth grade. I left school in uh, the beginning of the 10th grade. I just found myself frustrated. I didn't feel like I was learning anything. And coming from a, a kind of, a, you know, on Vancouver Island, logging's the chief industry, and everybody that I grew up with is very practical. You know, if you couldn't weld and use tools and run tractors and, you know, do stuff, you were kind of a useless person, you right. know? Um, so when I was in school, you know, in social studies and, you know, French class, and I'm like, what, this doesn't, connect the dots for me and I, I couldn't get anywhere. So to make, to make myself viable and, and, and useful to the world, I found when I got out of the army, I went to sports massage therapy school because that's long story made short. I, through my experience as trainer of the United States Army boxing team, I intuitively sensed I could help the fighters through massage. So I just started reading books on sports massage and my grandmother, when I was a kid, I had asthma due to a traumatic 
uh, emotional event that triggered uh, several years of asthma in me. And my grandmother was the only one that could get rid of the asthma, and she would do it with massage. And so something stuck inside of me that my grandmother left this imprint on me that love and touch with healing intention was very powerful. And so when I became the trainer, I, 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 I was also representing the Army in triathlon. So I'm one of the rare Army athletes that represented the Army in two sports. I fought on the Army boxing team, and I was the Army's representative in triathlon. I won the Army triathlon. My wife did too, which was a rare event, husband and wife to win an event like that with almost 800 people competing. And I started studying everything. And then when I got out of the army for the next 16 years, I averaged about $30,000 a year in continuing education. And what I did is whenever I ran into problems with a client, no matter what their issue was, I would then go research journals or find the doctors that specialize that. But what that led me to was searching around the world for who is the best at disc injuries, who's the best with neck problems, who's the best with digestive issues. And so I ended up actually amassing 5,087 classroom hours in workshop time. And because most of these were approved for continuing education for physical therapists, chiropractors, and osteopaths, and I managed to, to get in. Sometimes I got kicked out when they found out I didn't have a professional degree, which sucked because I'd fly all the way there. And they said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, you let me in. I, you, I wrote right on there what I do. I'm a right. sports massage therapist. But that only happened two or three times. But I ended up getting to study with the best people in the world. And I learned hands-on, no BS, not a bunch of theory. This is what you do with this. This is what you do with this. And so I amassed this spherical knowledge. And because I didn't have a professional bias, I would go to chiropractic conferences. I would go to massage conferences. I would go to physical therapy conferences. I would go anywhere, whether it be craniosacral or whatever it was. And so by the time I got to the point where I had spent, you know, the first probably 10, 12 years, I started my institute in 95. I had amassed this sort of library of practical knowledge and I'd learned how things connected because the chiropractors have a unique way of looking at things that's sure. often more holistic than the physical therapist. So I studied things like applied kinesiology, muscle testing. I studied George Goodhart's work. And many of the, I studied the history of chiropractic, the history of osteopathic, the history of medicine, uh, the history of the drug industry, the history of shamanism. And so I was looking into all these things. So essentially what happened is I, by the time I had been running my institute for several years, some of my top students that had spent years studying with me and were instructors and, and high-level people started coming to me going, Paul, and I would keep, keep hearing the same story. So what happened was is they would say, we don't know sometimes what to do because you've taught us so many different ways to assess people, physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, we, we can assess people for eight hours straight, but then we have this massive information and right. people are often so start? screwed up. We don't yeah. know where to start. And the first time, you know, I would talk to them and say, well, you know, here's how you go through this process, right? But after it started happening over and over again, I said, okay, I've got a problem on my hands because there's an internal process that I have that I haven't figured out how to teach my students, which is how do you 
pin the tail on the donkey, yeah. sift through all this massive amount of information and prioritize it. That is ultimately what led to the, to the development of the Czech totem pole. And so I had to say, look, this is how the nervous system's wired. I studied developmental man for a long time. Penny, my wife, uh, has a master's in biological anthropology. So when I met Penny, we had long and interesting conversations about developmental man, the selective pressures of nature, and I would share my concepts. And that's how my primal pattern movement system got developed, was me asking one question, what would we have to do to survive in nature with our physical body? Mm -hmm. And so I analyzed what were the movement patterns you'd have to have. And long story made short, I identified you had to squat, lunge, bend, push, pull, twist, and gait, walk, run, and sprint, all standing on your feet without any balance aids whatsoever. And so what I did is I said to my soul, okay, I, I need to figure out how to categorize this information into a simple system that could be used from beginning students to the most advanced doctors and therapists in the world. So my soul said, grab your notebook and go for a walk. At that time, there was like a five, almost a five mile trail through the brush behind my house in Vista that hadn't been built up or anything. So I could go on a nature walk, which is I used to do a lot of walking meditations out there. So long story made short, I started walking, my soul would ask me a question, I would answer it, and then my soul would say, write that down. Well, by the end of that four and a half mile walk, I had the four key steps. One, Dr. Happiness, what do you love enough to change for? I found if you didn't identify what it was that a person legitimately wanted to do for themselves, not because their husband wanted them there, their boss wanted them there. Mm -hmm. And I worked with a lot of workman's compensation people. I owned a physical therapy clinic for three and a half years. I worked in one for four years. I worked with a chiropractor for two years. So I had a lot of experience in the trenches in the medical system and seeing how a lot of people just don't want to get better. And for the first time, someone's listening to them and touching them. So these people just don't want to get discharged because they're getting loved for the first time right. in their life, right? So I found if I found out what it was that they wanted to do for themselves, and I oriented their therapy that way and said, well, look, you're here because you got injured at work, but let's make it work for you. They started healing. And they actually got involved in the therapy and started doing their home stretches, exercises, mobilizations, diet changes, whatever. So then my soul said, look, everyone has to have the right amount of movement first and foremost to keep their bodies healthy. And then if they're an athlete, they have to move in the right movement patterns that you've, does, that you've identified for their specific general health needs and sports have needs. Have you identified amounts? Or is it very subjective person to person? Like, is there a specific amount of prescribed movement? You're going you're gonna to make them as a minimum for people? Well, there's a, there's a baseline level. Uh, you know, the standard prescription is somewhere between an hour of movement and 30 minutes of movement a day. But it's very tricky because the intensity has it's a huge intensity. factor yeah. on it. And there's a big difference between an hour in a gym and an hour running, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, or an hour on a spin bike. You know, you have high intensity training, which is what we do when you're lifting four, anything 8RM or less is classically high intensity training. Mm -hmm. But then there's high density training. Like if I take you in the gym right now and, and do 20 sets of exercise in 20 minutes, 
it'll spank you good and hard. Sure. And it's not high intensity, it's high density. density right. So in that 20 minutes, you can do the same volume of work that a lot of people would do in two hours in mm -hmm. the gym in their typical, you know, lollygagging around. You know, as Charles Polican says, uh, they're, they're, most trainers are just rent-a-friends. They're not actually really directing the training. Very true. But so the point there is that my soul said, look, movement is critical and you have to analyze what type of movement they need, where their movement patterns are deficient relative to their homework and sports environment. Then they have to have enough rest and they don't understand the science of rest. And I had studied the science of rest extensively. So is so, it the third one? That's yes. Sleeping. So we have Dr. Happiness. What are you willing to do to create happiness yep. for yourself and what values are you willing to establish so you are clear what your values are? As I say to my patients and students, your yes has no value till you learn to say no. And if you don't have consciously stated values, then you often find yourself saying yes when your heart says no or you say no because your ego says no when your heart says yes, you really should do that. Right. Um, so then we have doctor movement. Then we have... Dr. Quiet, and then we have Dr. Diet. And I found years ago, I started doing extensive uh, studies. I used to study Jeffrey Bland's work. I did nutraceutical work. I took courses. I studied tons of books. And for three, four, five years, I studied using very comprehensive evaluations, even blood tests. I went through three years of functional medicine testing training. And I found that it wasn't doing much of anything for my patients. Uh, but then when I studied metabolic typing and my friend who I've been working with on challenge cases for 25 years at least, now Dr. Cliff Oliver, turned me on to Bill Walcott's book, The Metabolic Typing Diet, and I started assessing what their metabolic type was, two things made a massive change in their recovery and their athletic performance. Remember, I've been working with the best athletes in the world for a mm -hmm. long time, not mm -hmm. just the feeble people, them too, but piles of, of the best athletes in the world. And so I'm seeing a lot of these people three, four, five times a week because some of them are got very serious injuries. So I'm monitoring their tissue. I'm monitoring range of motion. I'm monitoring how their joints move. You know, pretty much everything you can pick up, I'm on it. And so when I switch people to organic food and I found out what their metabolic type was and had them orient their diet that way, and started teaching them the indicators of when they're eating too much fat and protein relative to too much or too little carbohydrate so they could learn to adjust their daily intake, I saw bodies healing faster than I've ever seen before. I saw people that had chronic trigger point syndromes that had been in therapy for months. Within two weeks, it was like someone waved a magic wand. I saw athletic performance enhancements. I saw strength enhancement. I saw muscles start growing where they weren't growing before. Mm. And I went, wow, the quality of the food and getting the right ratio of plant foods to animal foods for your own genetic needs is more powerful than all the damn supplements you can fucking buy for the rest of your life. And I studied organic food and organic farming extensively. I was raised on a farm and I went deep into soil science. I did courses on soil science and I realized you don't know shit about nutrition if you don't understand soil science right. because that is the basis of nutrition. And so when I looked at all the toxicity in commercial farming and then I looked at all the supplements and realized, fuck, 99% of the supplements out there are just either synthetics, which is worse than garbage, 
or they're they're not organic. Con they're concentrated, commercially farmed products, which you cannot filter out pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, and fungicides, which are highly toxic chemicals. So I'm like, these people, a lot of athletes were coming in with bags. I would have them bring all their supplements to me to analyze them. They, some of these guys were taking $650 to $1,100, even more a month in supplements. None of it was organic. The first thing I would do is say, you're going on a seven-day caveman diet no nuts no grains no seeds no dairy you can eat butter unless i think you have an intolerance to butter then i put you on ghee clarified butter because there's no protein in it so it doesn't typically trigger the immune system so no nuts no grains no seeds no dairy eat all the plants you want eat all the fruits and vegetables eat all the meat but don't eat anything else and after seven days, 100% of the athletes and people I worked with came back going, I am feeling better than I've ever felt. Yep. Why the hell was I buying all this stuff? And I said, because you read too many magazines, you watch too much television, and you believe what athletes that are being paid thousands and thousands of dollars to tell you they eat that shit. Actually, right. the, you, you think it works. So essentially what happened was I said to my students, there's four things you got to look at. The most important thing is find out what creates happiness for that person and help them establish their own core values about how much exercise am I going to get, when am I going to get it, and how am I going to get it. And I tell people the best exercise in the world is the one you're willing to do every day. Absolutely. Have you created shit. a system for developing or determining your values? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's available on uh, checkinstitute.com. Well, that's part of my Ford doctor core training. It's part of my holistic lifestyle coach training. I don't want to go into it. I just want to know if you had a system that, that the listener can go check out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, I could give a long expose of that. But yeah. basically, your values are really what are you willing to do? Because sure. if you don't, you've got less chance of living your dream and more chance of spending all your money on doctors and pills and drugs and feeling like shit. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so... Just sort of to s synthesize that, what's your dream and what are the values? And the values you have to have are what am I willing to do that's happy making for myself? What kind of exercise and how much and when am I going to do that? Map that out, make that sacred time. What works best for me diet-wise and what do I need to know about myself that are indicators of too much fat and protein or too much carbohydrate so I know when to adjust my now, Is that diet? something we can talk about in a short amount of time? Because like, I know we're kind of on a time crunch, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Well, I'm not. And it, okay, good. <laughs> well, metabolic typing is uh, obviously something that could be you know, a, a multi-day course in and of itself. But yeah. knowing the factors that, that could indicate, hey, you're having too many carbs or too many fats or too much protein. I, I have an online course because this is so important. So I actually important. took a, a, a big one chunk of a whole day from my holistic lifestyle coach level two, which is my professional training for yep. people that want to do this for a living. And it's called primal pattern eating. And I take you through a very comprehensive explanation of how food affects your body, everything from your motor skills to your vision, to your hearing, to your emotions, how to identify what you're reacting to, uh, I show you how to use muscle testing. I show you how to connect to your own soul so you can get guidance from your higher self. Oh, wow. um, I show you how to use a system of symptom and, and diet logging. So you log all your symptoms that you're having, positive and negative, like in a phone, when they happen, and you simultaneously log everything you're eating and drinking from spices to water to soda, whatever's going in your body. 
and I show you how to begin looking for patterns. So you'll see, for example, every time someone goes to McDonald's and has chicken McNuggets within an hour, they have a headache. So I say, okay, look, after 10 days, you're going to see symptoms correlate with sure. foods and drinks. And that begins a process called exclusion diet. Exclusion dieting, which is the most accurate assessment for identifying food intolerances and food allergies to this very day. And then I couple that with a four-day rotation diet I built so you can take the stress off your immune system. But that online course, Primal Pattern Eating, shows you how to do this for yourself and gives you a snapshot of what it's like to be in HLC2 training, and it radically changes people's lives. What are some lives. of the most common... So the big thing that we're having on our... Um, my show right now is I bring out a lot of experts around, you know, keto and and vegan and and mm -hmm. performance nutritionists and then and you know whatever all any type of nutrition fad that exists right now. And you said the right word there, fad. 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 Yeah, I understand. You understand. You know what fad means? <laughs> no. Forthcoming anatomical dysfunction. <laughs> True story. So we know that it's it's probably some blend in the middle, depending who you are, what your activity level is, what your goal it is. Could, right? It could be anything from fasting to veganism to vegetarianism to eating nothing but fat and protein. And yeah. I've demonstrated a thousand ways from Sunday that even a guy with as much muscle mass as you could need to be on a vegetarian diet for sure. a few days or a week to clean out or to get a variety of plant-based nutrition. There is no formula except learning to have a relationship with your body and the wisdom of your cells. And then if you get deeper into your soul and paying attention to the signs and symptoms, I have seen every single diet you can imagine that's been touted as the magic from the keto diet to the Pritikin diet. I've been around for 35 years doing this, so I've seen all this shit come and go. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you're just listening to somebody else's advice about some diet, then you're just like someone who reads the Bible and believes it's the word of God and ends up spending the rest of your life in pain trying to figure out why Jesus would love you and burn you in hell. Right. Now, is there things that we can directly... Um, give the listener that, like, hey, if you're experiencing this symptom, it might mean it's too much fat. If you're yeah, yeah, there's this, a lot of key indicators. For example, if you're getting too much fat, I, I, to make it simple, because the high sources of fat are almost always animal-based foods. Mm -hmm. Now, there's exceptions like oil. If, you, if you're, if you're uh, eating peanut butter, that's high fat. If you're eating an avocado, that's largely fat. But when you look at it in general, almost all your high-fat foods are high-protein foods. So I just break my system into eyes, no eyes. If it has no eyes, it's high in carbohydrate and typically low in fat. If it's got eyeballs, it comes from an animal, and it's going to be higher in fat and protein. Now, inside there, you can have things like lean fish, I'm in the metabolic typing system, I'm a parasympathetic dominant fast oxidizer, which is basically someone who has genes that comes from regions where the ground freezes in the winter, and they don't do well without a certain amount of uh, flesh foods, fats, and they typically have a higher need for uh, foods that have purines, which is in the dark meat of birds, it's in the dark meat in tuna, it's high in sardines, and purines turn out to be very important for making neurotransmitters in our body. So some of us have, a, for example, have a higher need for purines. The point I'm getting to, a guy like me can't live well at all off of lean meats or chicken breast. I feel like crap. Yeah. 
So what happens if you're somebody who needs higher fat mixed with protein and you eat a lot of protein, you'll feel full, but you'll feel hungry all the time. And you end up often getting a bloated looking gut and you just can't ever satiate yourself. And then it leads to a lot of people not knowing what they're hungry for. So they end up grazing on, you know, bars and shakes and, and ultimately screwing themselves up when really what they need is usually a protein source that's richer in fat, such as dark meat. And so examples are the way I teach people at a basic level, which is it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor, but it's very true. From an engine perspective, or the guys, you, you have to have an air-fuel ratio mixture to make an engine work right. And every engine has a different air-fuel ratio to make it work right. So the fuel is like the fat and the protein, and the air is like the carbohydrate. For those of us that have been camping and ever started a, a fire in our fireplace or a campfire, you just can't light wet logs with a match. So they're like the fat and the heavier flesh sources. And the kindling is like the carbohydrate. So you just like you got to have enough kindling to, to, to start a burn on a big log to metabolize it effectively, each of us, depending on the environment we're in, the genes we have, how much stress we're under, and the physical stress, emotional stress, and mental stress all have an effect on your metabolism and what you need. It's not just physical exercise. Sure. So essentially, if you get too much fat or protein, you feel full but hungry, and you often find that your mental functions get quite depressed. You get lethargic and dull. And so what you see is those people end up being tea and coffeeaholics because they're actually using liquid kindling. That's what they have to do. They're taking in sugar and stimulants to try to light this wet log they've got in their gut. If you get too much carbohydrates for your needs, then your mind speeds up you never really feel satiated. You're grazing all the time. And so, for example, back in the day when I was a competitive triathlete, I, I was like reading Robert Haas, Eat to Win, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you're, I don't know how old you are, but that, you probably were a kid when that book came out. <laughs> but it was all carbohydrate-based, yeah. right? Lots of grains and all that stuff. Well, shit, I was like a farting machine trying to do that. And I just like felt off all the time. And I could never, I would eat like, I had like a salad bowl of cereal in the morning and I would eat till I was like blue in the face, could barely run. And two hours later, I was starving to death and I had terrible gas. I could blow the sheets off the bed at night. And one day, one of my buddies who actually studied nutrition was quite a sharp guy. He was an exercise physiologist named Jerry Telly, who did a lot with bodybuilders actually. He said, Paul, why don't you try eating a can of tuna and an avocado right before bed. And one day, I did that, and for the first time, I did not fart all night. I slept like a rock. I wake up feeling with energy, and my head wasn't all foggy. I didn't have puffiness under my eyes. My brain was clear, and I thought, what the hell went on? That's more like I ate on the farm. And I said, this Frickin' triathlon training diet shit ain't working at all for me. I'm like, so I'm going back to eating the way I did on the farm. And presto, man, I started recovering better, feeling better, everything. It was like somebody just turned a light switch on inside of me. So 
when you're eating too much carbohydrate, it tends to make the, the metabolic systems race. So you get these highs and your mind goes really fast and you get, can get almost like ADD. Like if you give a kid sugar, right. that's what it does to you. Right. But then you don't have any sticking power. And then what happens is you go high blood sugar, you release a bunch of insulin to try to store the sugar to protect the nervous system. Then you crash. Then you got to do it again. So I saw athletes going sugar high, sugar low, sugar high, sugar low, and they were drinking tons of coffee and tea. And that's when I started doing research because I like every athlete and every person I'm working with is addicted to caffeine. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm not going to get them off of this addiction because I tried to get myself off of coffee and had a rough ride after, I mean, it took me a year to get myself off of caffeine and it was the shits. I was like, could barely get my brain to turn on for quite a long time. I developed some techniques for getting off a of coffee, another story, but in there, my soul said to me one day, if you, I, what happened was I just took a, a time release multivitamin, organic whole food multivitamin. It was a time, a chelated vitamin. Mm -hmm. And I had studied what chelation is. So I'm sitting there chewing this vitamin up and, and interestingly, I don't normally chew them. But for some reason that day, and I was smelling it, and as the fumes were rising up into my brain, I had this concept come to me, and my soul was saying, chelation, it slows it down. What chelates caffeine is fat. And I'd researched alcohol addiction and problems with alcohol and found that alcohol speeds the Krebs cycle up, and it actually skips steps in the Krebs cycle, so it actually raises blood sugar faster than even table sugar does. And so the research on alcohol said the best thing you can do is eat fat like cheese or cuts of cold cuts of beef to tie the alcohol in your stomach and it has a lot less negative effect on the body. So I thought, well, shit, if it'll work for alcohol, why don't I put butter in my espresso? And then I started experimenting with nut oils and Laird Hamilton was one of the first pro famous pro athletes that I turned on to that. And I found by just getting people, for example, too much stimulus, too much carbohydrate, coffee, and most people put sugar in it, throw two pats of unsalted butter in there, and now you balance that sucker out. Now you got the right amount of log and kindling. Right. And I, because I was doing functional medicine testing, I found people weren't having nearly the problems with adrenal exhaustion. Their energy was much more stable. Their mind functioned a lot better. And that's exactly what the basic concept of metabolic typing is. But people get caught in these rigid prescriptions. Oh, I'm a protein type, or I'm a mixed type, or I'm a carb type. And then they follow the diet because that's what they were taught to do in school is follow orders and not think for themselves. Right. And even though metabolic typing actually teaches to pay attention to these systems and modify, people just don't listen. So ultimately, that concept led to me developing a system of how to work with the body, how to use muscle testing, how to do the diet logging, look for patterns, and then that inspired me to teach people how to connect with their own soul, and those who were ready for that level of spiritual training could then use every meal, every interaction with food as a spiritual practice. And in the West, we have this sort of bad habit of going to church on Sunday and then being, <laughs> let's say, a right. dickhead for six days, sure. and then going back to ask Jesus to forgive us. Yeah. And I said, let's, let's make this... Uh, at least every meal. And I found I could get people in touch with the, the essence of their own self, their soul, the 
part of them that wasn't dogmatic and wasn't trapped in religious ideas that was actually consciousness. I, you know, the soul is consciousness within you. It's, right. it's not... So you you can get bring, mysterious about it, but it's really consciousness. Well, you keep bringing that term up, the soul, and I want you to, to um, define that. Another thing I want you to go down the path of is the idea of finding meaning, because I think those things really tie in nicely together. And, and I've heard you on other podcasts talking about most people can't find meaning in their life. Yeah. And I think if you can't find meaning, it's very hard to become conscious and, and you know find your soul. So yeah. I'd love to just you know enlighten us on that, because that's something you talk about a lot. Well, there's a lot of ways of looking at the soul. Um, Having studied hundreds of books on it, right next to you here is over 120 books on God and probably another 100 plus books on the soul. I've studied world religion. I've studied philosophy of religion. Uh, I've studied metaphysics. I've spent time with monks and, and a lot, right? So, and then I work with myself, actually, and, and I'll tell you one day, and this is, you know, after years and years of studying, I, I started getting irritated because as you have experienced yourself, whenever you study a topic like something like the soul or diet, you can't get anybody to agree on anything. Right. The vegans say that's the way. The meat eaters say that's the way. I mean, everyone thinks that way. Then you can find someone with science to back every opinion. So what do right. you do and when everybody... that's the most convincing author. Yes, that, yeah. right? And so, you know, you got the Barry Sears thing. You got the Ornish thing. You know, so, you know, these guys are going at each other tooth and nail and half these diet experts are overweight and unhealthy and look right. like and shit. Most of them are or full of shit. look like skinny as a rail like they came out of a concentration <laughs> camp, yeah. right? And I'm like, yeah. that's not exactly how you would have looked in nature. Right. Um, so what happened was I was like doing all this research into the soul and I wish I, w I could have just asked the monks, but this was like I was much older by this time. And I didn't want to go down to the SRF temple and ask the monks because I would have just gotten their, their version of it. Mm -hmm. But the point I'm making is I couldn't find any consensus on what the soul was. There was just radical differences of an opinion. And it ranged very, very widely from very intellectual concepts to very elusive concepts. And 99% of the books in the world on the soul don't tell you anything about how to get in touch with your own soul. Right. Which I thought was just silly. So I'm sitting in my sauna meditating. And this is, you know, maybe 18 years ago or something. And I said, all right, I'm going to do a simple test. If the soul is what I think it is, it's consciousness. My conclusion after all my research was that only God can give a soul. If the soul is consciousness, then only God can give life. You can't be alive without a soul. Now mm -hmm. I'm having to step, skip, you know, this is, you know, years of training I right. give people to understand this stuff in its depth, but most people can follow the logic of it. So I'm sitting in my sauna, and, I, and, and I, I've been meditating since I was a kid, and so I know how to quiet my mind. And I said, okay, I have a simple question. If there's a soul inside of me, then you should be able to know my thoughts and hear me and feel me because you are me. So I said, I am going to quiet my mind so I know that I'm not doing the talking. And then I asked the question, dear soul, if you were here, give me some indicator that you are listening to me. And I completely relaxed and all of a sudden the energy in my body surged up. Like, you know the feeling if you haven't seen your wife for a week 
and she meets you at the airport and you get that first hug and kiss, how yeah. love just flows through your body. Yep. I'm sitting in my sauna and meditation and I said, if you're here and you can hear me, show me some way to know you're here. And I had this huge heart opening surge of energy wow. that rose up through my body like I was standing on one of those big vents in New York where the building blows its exhaust and it'll blow a woman's skirt up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. I don't even know how to do that to myself. Right. And so I said, dear soul, if that was you, do that three times in a row. And woof, woof, woof. I'm like, whoa. And so I said, wow. I, then I said, have you been with me answering my prayers and my deep questions and guiding me all along? Yes, I have. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. This is mind boggling. So then I said, Dear soul, show me how I know what it feels like when you're saying no to me, such as if I ask you, should I do this or not? And then my energy just sunk, and it felt just like you feel when you know someone's telling you a lie. Right. You know that broken, crooked, empty feeling? Mm -hmm. Like, when, especially when someone you love is lying to you. And I went, wow, I've had that feeling many times. And I've had that feeling many times when I was wondering what procedure should I use to maybe mobilize this temporomandibular joint or what's the best thing to do for this patient? Should I send them for surgery? And I'd have that broken feeling inside. No, don't. And I inst instinctively sensed, no, there's something I'm missing and I would hold out and keep searching. Inevitably, I'd figure out how to save them from surgery. So I took that basically yes-no language, which is really what dousing is, and I had experience at dousing. I used to work on an exploration and water well drilling crew for a year, and I became the dowser and never missed a single well. And so I knew what it felt like to feel energy moving because I had doused many wells successfully. And so then I just started working with that and asking questions that could be answered with a yes or a no. And that grew, and then... When I met Master Fong Ha in, I think, 2000 and asked him to guide me because I was writing my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, and I found that people that were doing Tai Chi and Qigong were still trapped in their head and they couldn't relax inside. So I knew that part of my path was to develop a simple system of what I called working in to counterbalance all the externalization of the self or the ego. All this go get them, do, go, go, ass kicking which you've lived very thoroughly. And so I knew from all the burnt out athletes, I had to show them how to practice some of the things the monks had taught me. But I also wanted to understand Tai Chi and Qigong much more deeply. So I took a training program in medical Qigong, practiced it religiously for a couple of years and got great results with it. But it was still... I still felt I needed the credibility of a bona fide master. So I'm studying one of my books up here. Uh, I believe it's that two-volume series, Warriors of Inner Stillness. And it had pictures of the lineage of the ancient Chinese and uh, Taoist and uh, Qigong and Tai Chi masters. And I'm reading about all these masters. And I get to the most recent one, Master Fong Ha, who's still alive and lives in San Francisco. And I had that lightning experience like aha find him i have got to track him down so i had one of my researchers figure out how to get a hold of him i called him up told him i was writing this book 
would he be willing to work with me? I'd be happy to pay me. He says, I'll do it for free. I flew to San Francisco, long story made short. He put me through uh, enough training that I reached a, sen a sense of inner mastery where I knew what, uh, that what I was trying to teach. And I did multiple gongs, which are 100-day practices. My first one was stand like a tree. I'll tell you a funny story. So I fly to meet him. He meets me at the door. And the first thought I had was, this guy just looks like Yoda. He's about five foot one or two, big, broad shoulders like yours, big, strong looking arms. At that time, he was he's about probably about 80 now, but you know this is like around 2000. So he, maybe he was 60 something, but he still looked like a, you wouldn't want to tumble with this right. guy. He looked like a real strong MMA fighter or wrestler, right? And my first thought was, this guy looks just like Yoda. So I walk in his door, the first thing I see is a poster of Yoda with his lightsaber on the wall. I'm like, obviously He's someone else it. has told him <laughs> exactly. that. So, my, so he takes me out behind his house, and he says, okay, stand like this. He says, I'm going to teach you Zanzung, which means stand like a tree. So he gets me in the right posture, and he says, now you just stand there, and showed me how to breathe diaphragmatically through my belly. He goes, I'll be back in a little while. I'm standing out there, standing like a tree, and there's three different hand positions, and after a while, your arms begin to shake, and your body shakes, and then you move. And I'm like, okay, you know, I used to be a paratrooper. I've played these games where you gotta <laughs> hold your weapon out in sure. front of you until you're dead, and people are dropping like flies. And So I said, I can play this game. Well, this went on finally. I didn't know how long it had been, but I noticed the sun had moved noticeably in his backyard. He comes out. He goes, oh, you did very good. He says, most people only last two or three minutes before they can't hold the posture or they just give up. I said, how long have I been out here? He said, over an hour. Very good. That was, so my first assignment was to stand like a tree an hour a day for 100 days. If I missed a single day, I had to start over again. He can't do anything during that time. You stand like a tree and you calm your mind and you breathe through your belly and you learn to feel the energy moving through you. Your eyes you have learn, to be open or closed? Uh, ideally closed. Closed. So you bring your consciousness inside. Sure. The eyes actually consume a huge amount of energy. So mm -hmm. your eyes are providing about 80. They use, I don't remember the exact figure, but whenever your eyes are open, you're using a lot of the brain power yeah, to feed the eye system. Yep. And you're consciousness is directed outwards so a lot of the inner arts are done with the eyes closed so i went through a series of gongs and it opened up my clairvoyance it did opened you make up my 100 curse. days oh yeah hell yeah, yeah man i was raised on a farm where you don't miss out or you don't get screw around and when right. i go to a master i'm not gonna fuck around right like this guy devoted his time to me i'm gonna devote my time to him so i did many gongs under his guidance and i had massive gains in many, many ways and abilities that I... So a gong is 100 days A gong is 100 What other ones did you days. do? Uh, I did stand like a tree. Then I did the Tai Chi ruler, which is a technique he taught me, which I teach my students these days, have been for years. It's a ruler that connects the heart meridians together. So you cycle your breathing while you're making a circle. So you're, you start with your arms out. And if you imagine you're... Imagine you've got a giant, like a Swiss ball in front of your face. Mm -hmm. As you inhale, your arms go up in the air and you make the top half of the circle. And as it passes your nose, you begin exhaling through your nose and then you 
move the bottom half and you're moving like you're doing a, a dynamic lunge but without going anywhere. So your whole body's making circles. Your shoulders. Yeah, for an hour? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> but it's terrible. But no, it's actually, you know, you, you, you. Feet don't move? No. Well, you, if you want to switch legs, you oh, can. Okay, got you it. put, you switch front leg to, you, you know, whenever okay, you get tired, right. you switch legs. Okay. And, and for a lot of people, it's very hard because sure. they're very deconditioned. But so what you're doing is you're actually, and, and I did research and studied heart mass research. And what I found it was doing, it was in training your biological oscillators, your mm -hmm. brain, your heart, and your, uh, the peristalsis and your digestive tract are all coming online. So they're actually, you're basically harmonizing your internal systems yep. and your ego go, goes flat. So now you're basically totally in tune with your unconscious, your subconscious, and your conscious. They're all, you know, like dancers moving beautifully. Right. And it had massive effects on my ability to read people, to have precognitive awareness of what was wrong with people. Long list of stuff. It just like it opened me up wide, you know, blew my mind, actually. And I've had many students go through this. It's very much what happens to people in shamanic healing ceremonies, except those are very short-term experiences. These are very sustainable experiences. So I basically studied his system, and then I took the knowledge I had from all these studies and said, okay, I've got to merge these into practical, simple applications that anybody can use, which became the work-in exercises or the zone exercises. In my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, I show a picture of Master Fong Ha and give him tribute for helping me develop all this stuff. So I balanced the working out and working in, but I kind of lost where we were going, but to synthesize the initial question was, I now had the ability to teach my students, when you analyze a client, you have to look at their life from four key perspectives. What are they doing that's happy making? How are they moving their body? How are they managing their diet and the quality of their diet and the need for individuality and how are they managing rest? And I show my students there's three types of rest, active, passive, and total. And if you don't understand how to use those three types of rest, it'll bite you in the ass, right. especially if you're an athlete. And then I showed them, for as the students go through their training, that these four doctors are not only physical, there's emotional. What are you putting energy to and moving emotionally? Dr. Happy, i.e., is this emotion I'm having really congruent with my dream or is it a habit I'm in or is it the byproduct of bad diet? Because it could be a biochemically induced emotion. Right. Then doctor movement, you have to look at the movement of your emotions and if it's productive or again, is it destructive to you? Most people, there's a great book behind you, Destructive Emotions by the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama and Daniel Goldman and yeah. there's lots of research in there on destructive emotions and how that's a major problem. Most people think themselves into illness and disease. So then we have to look at the emotional element of diet and is that stabilizing our emotions because that's the biochemical aspect of emotions. Then we have to look at the emotional response to rest. Then we have to look at the mental element of Dr. Happy. There's things that like sex might make you happy but it might not feed your mind. Right. Uh, sex might give you temporary emotional gratification, but you also find yourself having challenges with the person you're having sex with. So sure. most people's sexual intimacy 
and emotional stability are kind of like a choppy ocean, right? So I showed that we have to look at the mental component and what are we moving with our mind? How are we exercising our mind? What are we doing to grow ourselves mentally? What are we doing to feed our mind? You're sitting in my kitchen of mental stimuli right here, right? Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by thousands of amazing books by amazing people. And so I realize that I feel good when I'm growing my mind in ways that ultimately help me help myself and help other people. Humans ultimately crave growth, right? Yes. And so then... What do we, how do we look at Dr. Quiet? Because ultimately, if you don't get enough rest, your mind burns out. So you look at all the blunders in medicine from medical students being pushed into exhaustion and doctors operating on the wrong organs and the wrong levels of the spine, and this happens all the time. Mm -hmm. We look at what happens when people are driving and they're tired and policemen that are tired and the list is all the, you know, I've studied work related injuries and sleep deprivation is one of the highest reasons for industrial injuries. People cut their fingers off and crash forklifts and whatever. So I'm like, okay, what happens to your mental satiation if your body is not arrested and your emotions aren't rested and your mind isn't rested? So what I show my students is that the four doctor system is a physical, emotional, and a mental system. And I show a lot of people that have problems with their weight being underweight or overweight are often having problems because they're feeding only the physical elements of their body. Look at all the people that can't lose weight, but they're actually using food to try to feed an emotional emptiness or a mental emptiness, and mm-hmm. they haven't learned how to distinguish so, a physical from an emotional so from a can mental Can we talk about that? Emptiness. Because I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Anyone comes to me, there's always an emotional gap. Yeah. So what types of stress? So the question that we were kind of going down was, how do you start to access your soul and understand the feelings of, of interpreting what your soul is telling you? Yes. And then that ties in very, very nicely with how do we begin to um, identify some strategies to deal with emotional stress and, tra- and trauma, et cetera, that's building yeah. up in our life. Well, so are, is your question, how do you develop the strategy or how do you distinguish well, emotional how, eating from physical So eating? I think the first question is that we were starting to answer was how do we begin to... Um, interpret our soul, what our soul is telling us. Because I think that's a little bit obscure for people, right? You can be talking about the soul, like my soul is telling me this. Well, how do I know what my soul is telling me? Do you have a, do you have a, um, a, a meditation? Do you have Well, a, uh, like I, I just gave you a very quick introduction to it, but in mm-hmm. my Primal Pattern Eating online course, I take you deeper. Okay. But the reason I have to do advanced training with people, and it often takes at least a year in therapy with me, is because... What's in the way of connecting to your soul is your ego and your shadow and your programming. So the concepts aren't hard to work. In fact, I rarely have somebody that can't get a reaction from their soul and they go, oh my God, there it is. But what's hard is when their soul says, don't eat the Oreo cookies and their ego or their shadow or the broken child in them associates the Oreo cookies with the times in their childhood where they were happy and nobody was being violent. Mm -hmm. As an example, emotions. so, you know, the journey really, you, you know, this is what spirituality really is. It's this process of healing yourself 
so that you learn how to become your own mother, your own father, and you nurture the broken child, or in, in most people's case, there's many children in Native American Indian philosophy, and I'm a medicine man and spirit guide, as you know, that's what's called soul loss. So when I work with people, I identify all the physical, emotional, and mental traumas through a series of evaluative procedures, and also I can look into a person's field and identify them if they can't. That's part of what I've learned to do through all my training and spiritual practices, which is also I'm clairvoyant, so I have that benefit. But ultimately what we have to do and, and what my higher level practitioners are taught to do is help identify these points of trauma where a part of us had to depart for its own survival. Like if a child's about to be sexually abused or physically abused, the consciousness in that child can jump right out of the body. And so while the child's getting the hell beat out of it or daddy or grandpa or uncle is having sex with this poor little seven-year-old, her psyche is actually on the other side of the room crying its eyes out trying to survive. And so that is what in Native American language is called soul loss. So the problem is, is that's a part of your soul that you can't access because it's fragmented. That's also the part of you that becomes like a watchdog. So basically what Jung used is the concept of a complex. A complex is a cluster of neurons that are wired together by, a neurally, uh, by an emotionally charged set of associations. So for example, if your father tended to whip you with a black belt and he had dark hair and he had certain things he says, Anytime you see a man that has any of those characteristics or you see someone wearing a black belt, that complex becomes like a sub-personality and it immediately becomes afraid and gives you anxiety or gives you this urge to move away and you can't figure out why because you're just there for a job interview. You've never met this guy from Adam, but you're having these panic reactions or fear reactions or guys like you and me we build up lots of muscle and take martial arts so we can make sure we can handle that bear. But we often don't realize that the person that's in front of us that we want to punch in the face right now isn't our father because the broken seven-year-old or eight-year-old has now got its alert out 24-7 to try to protect you. So the fragment of the soul is constantly surveying the environment because it contains part of your consciousness. The problem is, is that the fragment does not evolve past the point of the fragmentation. So the seven-year-old in you, now what, 38, is still seven. And it still is looking for that person that's a threat to itself. So soul loss leaves us with sort of this Russian doll effect where inside of us is all the broken, reprimanded, fearful parts of ourselves that were belittled in school because your art didn't look good enough or your math wasn't very good or you weren't a fast enough runner or your dad said you're a pussy, you cry baby, shut the fuck up and get the job done. And really all you wanted was just someone to say good job or you watched your mother get the shit beat out of her, or, you know, there's a long list. If you look at the statistics of physical, emotional, mental, and sexual violence in families, it's shockingly high. Right. Unfortunately, it's quite high in religious families, 
especially I grew up with a lot of Catholics and I used to think I had it bad. I didn't know it could get worse than my family till I started hanging out with my Catholic friends and seeing that this spare the rod, spoil the child kind of concept of God is just passed right down the line until you got a bunch of kids that grow up being broken <laughs> people that need a lot of drugs and psychology help. But the point that I'm making is do you see that to really have consistent access to your soul, you've got to access, identify those broken parts of yourself because they've got voices and they right. act as artificial intelligence. Union psychology calls them complexes because they are subpersonalities. So and and this is rampant in bodybuilders. I, I, you know, I'm, no question. I'm just. I've worked with a yeah, lot of very emotionally broken bodybuilders. I've worked with a lot of steroid using athletes, and they they have plenty of broken child. And these are compensations to try to make them feel safe in the world. Look, a guy like you puts on muscle. I became a boxer and a kickboxer. Mm -hmm. So that and I lifted weights and made myself strong with the one freaking purpose of one day knocking my freaking dad out because I could not stand watching him hurt me or my mother or my brother or my sister and the pain of that beating those beatings ultimately led my brother to commit suicide I knew as a child that I was dealing with some a force of nature that had to be stopped and it drove me to be a very intense athlete it drove me to train very hard in the gym it drove me to do anything I could do to create the illusion that I was safe, right? Now, when I started working with my soul and working with shaman and using psychedelic medicines, man, I had one hell of a tour down inside of myself. And I've cried 20 gallons of tears, if not more. And, you know, I'm a guy that fought on the third best amateur boxing team in the world, I've played all the tough guy sports. I was a paratrooper. I'm trained to fucking kill a commie for mommy. So I went as far as you can go into the, the defense training, but without ever realizing all of it was to try to make broken children inside of me feel better. But once I started getting into these spiritual practices and real legitimate emotional healing and then using plant medicine properly, then I found all those broken fragments and I studied Native American Indie healing and I learned how to do a soul recovery and I, I brought all the pieces back together again. So the point that I'm making is most people have a hard time talking to their soul because the first thing that happens, any legitimate practice is a spiritual practice is a real threat to the ego because the ego is actually the illusion of control. The ego is all about I, all about what do I want? What job do I want? Who's in the way of that promotion? What do I got to do to get them out of the way? What do I want to eat? What's going to make me feel better? So the ego is totally oriented around creating the illusion that it can control its environment and get what it wants. Well, what do you do when what your soul actually came here to do is diametrically opposed to what the ego has been conditioned to do to medicate itself to create the illusion of safety and security. I'll tell you what happens. Your ego learns to impersonate your soul. And when you get the soul saying, don't eat the Oreo cookies, stop watching the porn, get off your fucking phone and meditate, 
the ego starts impersonating the soul, so then instead of getting a yes from the soul, or you get the opposite answer you should be getting, but until you get deep enough into yourself to distinguish the what I call the energy signature of a soul versus the ego, you think you're doing spiritual practices. So I get to laugh now and then students of mine will say, oh, my soul told me to eat the Oreo cookies or my soul told me to smoke a bag of pot or my soul told me I could cheat on my girlfriend. And I, I'm like, I hate to tell you this, but your soul is God within you. And there's one surefire way to know when your soul's talking, two surefire ways. If your soul's telling you to do something, it's almost always going to enhance all of your relationships. It's going to make you a better person no matter who you're interacting with, from insects to plants to animals to man to whatever. Two, if you ask the question, what would love do now, and you answer it honestly, you'll get the same answer your soul would give you. And egos I like that. don't give you that answer. Right. The ego says, fuck that guy. The ego cuts the guy off and takes his parking spot. The ego finds all sorts of ways to trick the system. The ego says, oh, my boss is rich. I'm going to steal from him. I'm going to use his phone to make long-distance phone calls. That's nothing like the soul operates, mm -hmm. right? So there's a real deep spiritual process that has to go on, but you see... Now, this gets a little bit deep, but you'd have to say, well, why would God set it up this way? Why go through all this? And you have to understand what consciousness is. There's a lot of definitions of consciousness, but Itzhak Bentov says consciousness is the total information-carrying capacity of any system. If God is God and God is unconditional love, then how can God know God until God has an experience? And how can God have an experience unless there is the possibilities of doing good or not doing good, loving right. or not loving? Right. How can God know what God is until God has some form of embodiment? If God looks in the mirror, there's nothing there. But if God shows up as Ben or Paul, and looks in the mirror, this is why we all know when we're looking into somebody's eyes, it's a very private thing because mm -hmm. the eyes are the window to the soul, which is God inside of you. So God's kind of a trickster. God's really the consciousness looking through the eyes of everybody at the play, but pretending to be everybody else at the play, right? Yeah. So who Ben is is God, who Paul is is God, but God also has a deeper trick going here because, you see, God could never experience love unless God created the illusion of separation. You love your wife, right. don't you? And you feel more when you, when, she's, when you leave. So what happens is, if everybody in the world was Ben, it wouldn't be so exciting to have sex. It w right. Kids would be a trick. Right. So what happens is God separates God into the two polarities of the male and the female, the yin and the yang, the empty and the full, dot, dot, dot. And so when we have sexed relationships, male and female, what happens is God is looking through your wife's eyes at you and looking through your eyes at her, but the ego creates the illusion that you're separate people, and now there is a way for love to have currency. 
if God was just looking at God in the mirror, there'd be nothing to see because right. God's unconditional. But when Ben looks at his wife or looks at one of his children or both of his children, he sees the illusion that there's somebody else there that he loves. And because he directs his affection toward them, then love actually takes on currency and God actually has the experience of loving God. But at the level of God consciousness, God knows both of them are God. This is why Osho said, children are born God and the parents beat it out of them. Uh, Saint Francis of Assisi uh, often had people ask him, how do I find God? That was one of the most common questions he would get and his answer is profound. Look in the mirror. Are you ready? People said, how do I find God? And he said, what you are looking for is what's looking. Uh. What you are looking for is what's looking. Right. So you see that by creating the illusion of individuality, separation, ego, Iness, we actually have the ability to connect to the other in we-ness. And through that, you have love. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. Love is the flow of energy. Love is energy. Love is information. There's a difference between I love you and, oh, I love you, Ben. Right. Right, and we know the difference. Mm -hmm. The flow of energy and information through empathic, I feel you, compassionate, I understand you, connection, and the first person we have to learn to love is ourself before we can really genuinely love anybody other because we can't give more love to someone else than we can give to ourselves. How would we even know how to do it? Right. I also define love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. Because the more you learn to love yourself, others, nature, and life, the more you realize you are the other and that you couldn't be here without them. You couldn't be here without the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, the soil, microorganisms. And how would you learn more about yourself without the rest of the people in the world to challenge you and show you what God isn't so that you can realize what God is and that's the nature of evil. Evil is any act that is inconsiderate of life itself. A moral is an act that is life affirmative, a code of conduct that is life affirmative. Something that's immoral is against life. Evil is against life. If you look at the word evil, E-V-I-L, it's live spelled backwards. Mm -hmm. L-I-V-E is evil backwards. So, Paradoxically, in order for God to truly experience what God is, God had to give the illusion, had to program into the illusion the choice to love or not to love. Because if you had to love God, what would be the difference between that and a robot? Right. Or a zombie? So paradoxically, when you look at the world and you look at the universe, you see that the whole, in my experience, the whole universe is weighted toward love. Yes, you can be evil. And we have a lot of successful evil people around, we right? Yep. No secret about that. But the more you are successful, metaphorically, in quotes, with evil, 
the more you isolate yourself from other people. Think about it. Yep. Think any time you've done something for your own benefit at the cost of somebody else, either to diminish them or to uh, promote yourself or to gain something by cheating, whatever, it always leads you into less trust in yourself. You actually begin, this is why they say, criminals always lock their doors because they think like criminals, mm -hmm. right? But the, rea the, the rest of us, like I grew up on the farm, I don't think we ever locked our doors. Right. I mean, the cars were open, the house was open. We, we didn't live in a way where we thought that we had to lock our doors because we don't think like criminals. But right. the more you... The more your ego tries to bolster itself personally, physically, emotionally, financially, etc., at the expense of other people, the more narrow your universe and your world gets. And the next thing you know, the only people you can trust are evil people just like you, and you know you can never trust them because you can't trust yourself. Wow. So what happens is God sets it up so that you have the free will to practice acts of evil, but ultimately God's got a default mechanism in the game because you go further and further into isolation until you have all the money and all the toys and all the people faking that they love you, but you feel absolutely desperately alone, right? And so there's, only, there's no way home but to learn to love. And so really, what my life has taught me through lots of bumps and scrapes is that the ultimate form of worship, the ultimate form of connection, the ultimate form of safety and security is to realize yourself as one with the other. And this, for example, Jesus says in the Bible, a rich man can no sooner get to heaven than a camel can get through the eye of a needle. Why? Because when you die, none of that goes with you. The only thing that leaves with you when you die is what you've become. Mm -hmm. And because we are ultimately God experiencing itself, the question is, are you happy with what you created? And when you become free of your body and look at the world and look at your life, you consciously see when you chose to act in ways towards other people that created not love, that created pain, that created separation, that were violent, whatever. And ultimately, each of us knowing the truth of ourselves after we die comes to the realization that we could love better, that we could live with more love, that we could do more for the world. And so the desire to be honest about who and what we really are draws us back into another experience of life. And we continue until we reach the point where we are so ultimately satiated that we actually become unconditional love again. And that is what really the word nirvana means, to extinguish or to blow out once you've reached the level of depth of understanding and you've saturated yourself 
so fully with love that you see the illusion for what it is, then you basically can return to source because you can't return to unconditional love until you are unconditional love because by definition, you can't be there if you have a condition right. on you, okay? So, the soul is unconditional love taking a journey into the illusion of duality in which consciousness becomes a psychic substance produced not blindly but in living awareness of opposites. And what God is, is that which loves us no matter how evil we are, because God has got to allow evil or love has no meaning. And neither does free will. The difference is, evil ultimately takes you down a darker and darker blind alley until you find that you're so alone that the only way to get home is to learn to love again and to reconnect and look at what the most painful torture there is for a prisoner, solitary confinement. Not physical violence, not starvation, putting them in a hole by themselves because what we are is everybody else and when we're separated from it, it literally will kill us. When we're evil, we are afraid of God because we inherently have a soul that knows the truth of what God really is, is not evil. So there's a point at which we come to the realization that what we're doing gives us some kind of momentary gain but ultimately hurts us in the heart. And the only way we can heal those wounds is to love ourselves better and the more we love ourselves, the more we realize we couldn't be here without everyone and everything around us. And then when we grow deep enough into ourselves, we realize that the pain is a necessary tool to awaken consciousness because if we didn't have pain, we would stay forever watching television, eating Oreo cookies, and pacifying ourselves, right. and we would never grow into ourselves to ask the deeper questions, to create meaningful ways of living and loving, and to create technologies that bring us together, and we inevitably have to work with a duality because we can't have the experience of consciousness without the duality of the emptiness and the full, the yin and the yang, the do, the don't do, the love, the not love. And that really is a very quick tour of a, of a journey that takes a long time, but you see everything we're doing from our athletic pursuits to how much muscle we have to how much of a badass we are, all, all comes back to that. gives us just the right amount of pain to have to dig deeper into ourselves to grow the consciousness that ultimately gives us the wisdom to connect the soil to the farm, to the laboratory, to the supplement, to the food, to the animal, to the environment, to the teacher, to the therapist, to the sage, to the wise man, to the Buddha, to the church, dot, 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 and eventually there's two paths to enlightenment. 
the positiva, which means you keep growing more and more knowledge till everything connects together and you realize, oh my God, it's all God doing this. Or the negativa, where you minimize intellectualism and you grow deeper and deeper into yourself until you get so empty that you're filled with the universe itself. Become, you become like an empty mirror. This is why the Sufis call it polishing the heart. When you become as empty as a mirror, what do you have in you? Only love. Everything. Only Everything. Right? No matter which direction. Can a mirror refuse anybody? No. No. So what happens is when you take the path of the negativa and you go deeper and deeper into calming your mind to where you have no ego activity, you become like a mirror that receives everything and you see there's no separation between the stars, the planets, the moons, right. the people, the dogs, the cats, the microorganisms. You see it's all God living and breathing and expressing itself and that's the Tao that can be spoken. The emptiness that makes room for it is the Tao that cannot be spoken. Extremely deep and complex. Oh, but that's just a quick tour. Is this the stuff you teach in your courses? This is basically what I teach my students as they advance, but I teach them how to manage themselves, how to manage their bodies, how to have a dream, how to cultivate legitimate discipline, how to have goals, how to have values, how to be aware of who's supporting you. Like, you are supporting me right now, and I'm supporting you. We are making love together, yeah. right, in the most beautiful way. You see, when we're young and immature, we think love is getting a blowjob or getting laid or, you know, that physical love. Right. That's kind of puppy love. That never lasts very long. And once that drunkenness wears off, that's when a relationship really begins. But then love is your wife bringing you your phone you forgot when she's got to drive a half an hour in traffic and it's going to make her late and she doesn't complain. And she says, I love you, Ben, and I'll do it for you. Or it's a child in need that maybe isn't learning well in school, but instead of getting beat up and criticized and called stupid, mom and dad know that that's just not the path to its genius and that it needs to be in a different kind of school. Or a child that's sick and requires you to abort your vacation plans. And a myriad of other things, right? We, we, sex is really just the bait to get you to the point where you fall in love with somebody enough to will, be willing to grow up with them. Mm -hmm. That's when the show begins. But I teach my students to be a living, breathing example of what they teach so they don't have to walk around worried they're going to forget chemical pathways and intellectual silliness. Carl Jung says intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience, and it's damn true. How many nutrition experts are unhealthy and overweight? You mm -hmm. go to a nutrition conference, it looks like an obesity conference. Mm -hmm. How many experts at weightlifting can't lift weights? How many experts at biomechanics can't lift weights, run or jump? I mean, I've lectured in universities all over the world, and it boggles me. I'm a consultant to many of the best sports teams and Olympic committees. And, and this is why PhD stands for piled higher and deeper, or progressive head death, as my friend James Wanless says. And I'm not against degrees or anything, 
But I'm saying, if you hide behind academic degrees or pieces of paper, but you don't do the work to grow yourself, to learn to love, to care for yourself, I don't give a shit what diet book you're reading. It's either working or it's not working. Right. Well, isn't it interesting that we have more MDs, more physical therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, nutritionists, dietitians, personal trainers, massage therapists, dance and movement educators per capita than ever in the history of man, and we are the sickest, most depressed, anxious, and suicidal people we have ever been. Why? Because intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And I have many people with advanced degrees from medical doctors, you name it. The Czech Institute is a multidisciplinary school. I don't care what your degree is. And they say, oh, do I have to do HLC? One, I've got a degree in nutrition. That means you really have to do it. <laughs> oh, I don't need to take your uh, program design. I've got a master's in exercise and sports science. And I say, fine, if you can pass the test, then go ahead. Come on in without that course nobody's ever passed the test, even with their fancy degrees. Why? Because they really don't know the practical applications of it. You know, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, I'm just simply saying the Czech Institute is my lifetime's work and now the work of many of my instructors who are very, very elite, very skilled, very practical, authentic teachers, and we have married our talent and our life experience to put our students through a process of authentically mastering themselves so they can share it with the world. And when you look in your, in your own eyes in the mirror every day and you really love yourself, it's easy to love other people. When you pay attention to what you're eating and are honest about when it's not working, and no matter what the vegans say or the vegetarians say or the keto people say, and you say, okay, that worked for the last three months, but now I'm not feeling good. Now maybe you need to be a vegan or a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And it might be for a day, it might be for a month, or it might be for a year. I, my soul guided me to being a vegetarian in my early 40s. And I said, okay, if that's what you want, knowing that I'm a fast oxidizer parasympathetic dominant, and I do best on about 70 to 75% flesh foods and 25% plant foods. But my soul said, you need to heal some things in you. So I went into a year of deep spiritual awakening when I didn't even know I needed it. Right. And every day, as I watched my muscle falling off my body, I mean, I used to do 10 sets of four in the deadlift with 500 pounds with nothing but a pair of Birkenstock sandals and shorts on. No wraps, no straps, no props, no drugs, no gimmicks, no toys, nothing. And many other things. You, I got pictures of me lifting six foot eight, 250 pound men over my head doing lunges with them and mm -hmm. none of them guys could even come close to doing that with me. I got Navy SEALs in my classes over my head who couldn't even get me off the floor. And, and so, you know, when you get honest and you ask your heart what would love do now and you ask your body, does this feel good? And you look, am I sleeping well? Is my sex drive good? Is my mental clarity good? Am I recovering from exercise at an optimal and ideal or natural rate? Um, are my emotions stable? 
Do I feel connected in my life? And, uh, and those kinds of questions, well, what you're eating and how you're living is either bringing you deeper into yourself and more capable of training and producing and growing yourself, or it's not. So much wisdom, man. Nowhere running long. I don't know where we're running, man. I'm but, I'm so busy looking at the beauty of Ben, man. Yeah, it, man, it's been an absolute incredible experience today, and um, I'm so grateful for the time and wisdom. And there's no doubt we're going to do this again because this isn't even scratching the surface of what I want to ask you. But uh, incredibly grateful for your time, and I'm going to direct everybody to the Czech Institute. And I know people are going to want to go over and check out your podcast. Living and we 4D. get into it now, man. That podcast, you've listened to some of them. There's no holds barred in there. Let's do it, man. I'm in. Living 4D with Paul Check. So as Paul says, I'm going to be on his podcast yes. coming up as well. He's going to reverse the tables. Uh-oh, it's on. And we're about to go lift some stones. I'm going to introduce you to a very primal form of exercise that's deeply spiritual. I'm in. Let's do it. Love you, bunny. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. I want to first say thank you very, very much to Mr. Paul Check for inviting me into his home to have this personal conversation. If you guys want to head over to YouTube, you can also check this video out on YouTube where you may get some really interesting B-roll of Paul and I smoking some interesting things and lifting some heavy stones and a bunch of other cool stuff we did around his home that day. Uh, Paul was incredibly gracious as a host to invite me and welcome me into his home. We also did some um, traditional cleansing um, practices with smoke. We also did some very unique drumming practices to make our heart and souls resonate on the same level. Very interesting. And when in, when in Rome, uh, you know, do as the Romans do. And Paul spoke very highly of this. And I'll tell you my subjective feedback. The next day, uh, after having very little sleep and, well, good food that day, I trained like an absolute rock star. It felt like my entire body was just rejuvenated and my soul was full and, and that was completely subjective. But, you know, I felt amazing after having left Paul's house. So a uh, huge thank you to Paul. Uh, I also want to give a huge thank you to Four Sigmatic for making this podcast possible. You guys understand there's an expense involved. There, I'm not a professional editor. Trevor, our Podcast Mastermind is the amazing editor that sits behind the desk, makes these things happen, makes the editing sound amazing, so you guys can have this information. So thank you guys very much for Sigmatic for sponsoring this show and uh, hooking you guys up with some amazing products. For Sigmatic is my only source for mushrooms. You guys know that if you haven't heard about mushrooms yet, I've been talking about this for a year now. Um, lion's mane is daily now for me. Every day I won't go less than six grams of lion's mane. Three grams in the morning and three grams mid-afternoon usually. It's not stimulating at all. We just know there's tons of research around brain growth as for our neurogenesis. Um, I'm also taking reishi every single day now. So three grams of reishi before bed is my go-to, whether I need to get better sleep, whether I need to calm down, or, which seems very relevant right now, if you need to get better, if you're feeling a little bit sick, a little bit run down, three grams of reishi seems to kick my immune system into full gear and I knock out any type of illness or sickness that exists. Um, so that's my go-to, even above vitamin C and echinacea and zinc and all those other things that people have been talking about. Reishi is my absolute go-to. Um, there's also some other really interesting mushrooms that I've been experimenting with from chaga to turkey tail. Um, I absolutely love 
mixing those things in my tea in the evening. I also mix it in my coffee in the morning. You guys know that I do my intelligence coffee, which is this three grams of lion's mane, 10 grams of collagen, five to seven grams of MCT powder, which I get from mctco.com. Um, and that's my morning mix. And I hope you guys enjoy that. Head over to foursigmatic.com now, and you can use the code MUSCLE, M-U-S-C-L-E, to get 15% off your entire order because they're awesome. They're hooking you guys up, but this may not last forever. Use the code MUSCLE at foursigmatic.com. Do not wait. Take care of our sponsors because they take care of us. And guys, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, the new Muscle Intelligence podcast. So you know we used to be Muscle Expert. We switched over to Muscle Intelligence. So it requires you having to go back into iTunes and subscribe again. So if you haven't done that, please do so. And it seems as though there's a lot of listeners out there who didn't realize that we've switched over to Muscle Intelligence. Um, so if you haven't already do subscribe and share it with at least one person that knows. And I always appreciate massively your shares on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, guys. Thank you so much. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review because I want to hear from you and I appreciate you and I love you. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.